Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. First up this week, Lee Arnold. She's the curator of Groundswell, Women of Land Art, a survey of artists who have worked in the land that revises ossified male-centric histories. It's at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas through January 7th. The exhibition provides a broad overview of themes, interests, and artworks that women created beginning in the usual land art era, the 1960s and 70s, and updates our understanding of land art to include not only work made in the most rural reaches of North America, but also work made and installed in and around urban and suburban centers. An excellent catalog was published by the Nasher and Delmonico Books. Bookshop and Amazon offer it for about $55. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, Sarah Crowner at the Pulitzer Arts Foundation in St. Louis and the Hill Art Foundation in New York. Please remember to give us a five-star rating and a review wherever you subscribe to the program. Lee Arnold, after the break. Now on view at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, Entre Horizontes, Art and Activism Between Chicago and Puerto Rico. Experience the artistic connections and social justice movements that link Puerto Rico with Chicago via an intergenerational group of artists alongside rich archival material that traces the relationships between art, politics, place, and identity. Plan your visit at mcachicago.org. On view through January 14th at the Getty Center, the new exhibition William Blake Visionary explores the unconventional art of painter, poet, and printmaker William Blake. Now celebrated as one of the greatest artists of the early Romantic era, Blake was largely unrecognized during his lifetime and lived mostly in obscurity. Follow his journey as an artist from his early years as a commercial printmaker to the legendary creator we know today, exploring Blake's wild imagination through acclaimed works that have perplexed and delighted audience for over 200 years. This major international loan exhibition is organized in cooperation with Tate. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. Acts of Living, the sixth iteration of the highly anticipated biennial exhibition, showcasing 39 artists and collectives living and working in Los Angeles. On view from October 1st to December 31st, and filling nearly every gallery of the museum, this year's edition addresses the intersection between art, community, and everyday life. These practices embrace the value of craft, materiality, performance, and collectivity. Accompanying the exhibition are artists' talks, performances, screenings, and conversations. For more information on the exhibition and programs, visit hammer.ucla.edu. And we're back. Lee Arnold, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. The story of your exhibition is less that women have been fully excluded from the history of land art than it is a recentering and a presentation of women as being of primary significance. So, for example, the last big U.S. last big survey of land art in the U.S. was Ends of the Earth at MoCA in Los Angeles and in Munich 11 years ago. Of the 96-ish artists, there were a lot of collectives in the show. Roughly 19 of them were women or women-inclusive, a number that's a little bit artificially high because many of the women were within collectives of like nine dudes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And the curators included in the exhibition several women who referenced rather than worked in the land. But still, I think it's fair to say your your show is a project of recentering and elevation. 
So taking as a given a certain historical sexism in the art world and beyond, are there reasons specific and perhaps unique to land art that have led to the men being centered in the in the hagiography in the historiography? Yes, I think in absolutely, especially when it comes to the construction of work that can't be made in the confines of a studio that requires assistance in the form of contractors who operate machinery in order to move earth or excavate earth, as in the case of Mary Mrs. Perimeter's Pavilion's decoys, which was she excavated an entire underground courtyard, or lifting and moving incredibly heavy remnants of infrastructure, as in the case of Beverly Buchanan's ruins and rituals, which, you know, comprises concrete footers that she kind of had brought over from a different part of Macon to be situated in in conversation with her cast concrete forms for that work. So these artists were already working alongside men in the art world and oftentimes being excluded from conversations at Max's Kansas City, as Patricia Johansson spoke about during the symposium this past weekend. But when they were going out into the world to make work, the people that they encountered most often that they needed to rely upon in order to achieve some of these works that were really ambitious or at large scale were always men. Men operated the earth moving equipment. Men were the engineers who helped ensure things wouldn't fall apart. Men often owned the land that they needed to access to create their work. You know, this is at a time, especially those late 60s, early 70s works, where second wave feminism is on the rise, but certainly there were many strides left to be made. You know, if you think about Roe v. Wade happening in 1973, that was, you know, that's just one aspect of uh, a woman's autonomy that was only, that was very fresh in terms of having that autonomy. Women couldn't get the credit cards in their own names until, what, 1974? So there's there's a lot of, in terms of land art, it's even more, there's more instances and more examples of uh, these artists encountering quite a bit of misogyny and sexism just to make the work and often being patronized when they were had ideas for things that maybe seemed to be outside the realm of what a woman would think of. There's a great story that Jenny Sorkin writes about in her essay where Beverly Buchanan's, you know, encountering the contractors who are charged with installing these massive concrete footers that I mentioned earlier. And when she approaches them and is introduced as the artist, the contractor puts a hard hat on her head, pats it gently and says, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially, we'll move these as many times as you want to. We understand that you're the artist, but that you would be like a woman moving furniture. You know, just this idea that a woman is only capable of decorating a space rather than controlling a vision. An anecdote that refers to domestic space indoors rather than men's space outdoors. So if one key project of the show is a recentering, another I wanted to raise before we kind of get into some specifics is that in your essay, you note that you 
didn't include artists who worked in the land only briefly, that you particularly wanted to focus on artists who worked in the land extensively, repeatedly, many times, over many years. Why is that framing? Why is that persistence, if you will? Why was that important to you? I mean, there's practical and logistical reasons why that was important to me, which are mostly boring and related to space in a museum. And the National Sculpture Center is only so large. We don't commonly do uh, group exhibitions for that very reason. And so limiting the show to just 12 artists was already a feat. (laughs) So it was a way to ensure that the artists who we chose would have examples that we could draw from as late, you know, as early as the late 1960s, and that could, we could draw from as up, up to 1990. So I wanted to be able to show this breadth of time that I, I don't think land art ended at 1990. That, again, was another boring decision to, an, a boring limit, I should say, to help us kind of tell this story in the confines of our galleries, which aren't very big. So I don't think land art ended at 1990, but that gave us another parameter. So there are these different parameters. You know, there are only American artists also, for example. Yes, you know, Anna Mendieta was born in Cuba, uh, Agnes Dennis in Hungary, but they both became um, U.S. citizens. And and I think that was another limiting factor. But also, to me, there is this very particular relationship Americans have to the land that is unique, I think, among Western art. So I did want to kind of emphasize that. But this idea of a prolonged engagement with land art, a sustained engagement with land art, again, was on the boring side, a a limiting factor in order to help help us show as much work by as many artists as possible, but also to be able to show how ideas of land art shifted even within that 30 years time frame. And there are other artists mentioned in the catalog, Jackie Windsor, Bonnie Orisher, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's talk. Let's begin to talk about work and making. You write that men who made land art quite often tended to destroy or impose themselves and their work upon the land in ways that you know we might consider as leaving semi permanent marks or even toxicity in their wake. I think the phrase you use is dominance and destruction. Think Michael Heiser. Think think Robert Smithson. Did women use those strategies? And if not, is there a meaningful difference? I have not found any instances of women using dynamite to blow up a mesa, as Michael Heiser did to create double negative. I'm not aware of any instances of artists pouring chemicals down the side of a hill. You mean uh, you mean women artists? <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Women artists. <laughs> because that I'm referring to Smithson's 1969 interventions where pouring glue down a hillside or asphalt. So I'm not aware of these kinds of more intentionally destructive acts or intentionally toxic, you know, gestures among women artists' work. But that's not to say there weren't interventions that the artists did that were as maybe impactful or extractive as some of the work that we think of by men, you know, displacing tons and tons of earth to create a temporary courtyard underground is certainly, that's not nothing, you know, that's displacing quite a bit of land in order to create something that was um, only there for a moment in terms of the time frame. And then there's the other thing, which is this idea of kind of cultural extraction 
which you see in the work of Michelle Stewart, where she's taking Earth and you can describe it in as positive terms as possible. Oh, it's, you know, minuscule amounts of Earth that she's rubbing onto the landscape, making an index of a particular place. But that is still kind of taking from, it is still an, a, a small extraction. It is also, hers is less intrusive because it is momentary and ephemeral. But then there are examples like sun tunnels, which is, you know, supposedly installed in this empty, barren landscape, when in fact that those are the ancestral homeland of certain indigenous cultures and communities. And so there is, I, I can't let women artists off the hook. You know, there, there are were some, there, there was damage done in some of the way that these artists were working. I would just say that there is less intention to destroy or to manipulate the earth in destructive means and ways when you compare that to the work of their male counterparts. Meg Webster and Agnes Dennis growing things, an embrace of the organic rather than often an embrace of the organic rather than a prioritization of the industrial. Yes. You know, when I think about the land art we were all taught, I think about how that historiography, which your project challenges, is that we think of land art as resulting from feats of strength, scale, power, swagger, you know, think think Sean Connery and John Wayne, you know, well, there are some things a man just can't run away from. You know, there there is this ethos we were all, yeah. which I think very much in, in, in thinking about it relates to similar mythology that was delivered to us about the United States' Western project. So understanding and, and acknowledging that a lot of that was a mythology constructed by the artists and their backers, are there similar narratives that the women told, extended, mythologized about their own address of the land? I mean, that I return to Nancy Holt's Sun Tunnels because I think this is a prime example of Holt you know, engaging in an act of mythology by making this work out in the desert and and then also promoting it through photography, promoting it through the same means that she witnessed Smithson promote his work. The trade, you know, the magazines, having it on the cover of Art Forum, writing about it, making a film about it. And often she describes it in her Art Forum essay about, you know, acquiring the land and also attribute, misattributes some quotes and sayings to different um, indigenous populations that actually weren't native to that area. So I do think that she was, you know, just by by nature of the fact that she was married to Robert Smithson, she was she saw the power in mythmaking and how that could communicate her work to a greater audience and also kind of elevate the work. Yes, no, I think that makes makes a lot of sense. What were the primary interests of women working in the land and are they as a group different from the interests of the men who were working in the land? I don't think that there is a difference. I think that there these are artists regardless of gender responding to things that were in the cultural milieu, milieu, things that were in the zeitgeist, the social unrest of the United States, the war in Vietnam, the photographs of the earth from taken from space. 
These were all highly impactful moments, images that affected this entire generation. So I don't think it really, there's a way to kind of parse influence among these artists by gender. I think they were all interested in in exploring land art through the grid, through travel, through mapping, whether it's mapping the stars, celestial alignments, etc., or mapping the earth, taking it, making an index of the earth. You know, these are gestures and ways of making that is kind of crosses the gender boundaries. One of the things that jumps out, at least to me, from the show is how interested many of the women in the show were in perception mm. and in playing with perception at a scale really only possible out of doors. So I'm thinking of works like Mary Misses V's in the Field of 1969, Battery Park Landfill of 73, Patricia Johansson's William Rush of 1966, and in a very different way, Nancy Holt's Sun Tunnels. What about perception was interesting to Miss and Johansson and Holt, and why did they take it outdoors, as it were? <laughs> as, it, as it literally was. Yeah, I know. I think <laughs> I think it'd be different Every Each artist would answer that differently. And since two of them are living, I hate to put words in their mouth, but I will try. You know, for Patricia, she spoke quite openly about it. I mean, it's in the Stephen Long film that we have on view. Perception for her was something that, you know, you're taught single point perspective in drawing and painting. It's a practice that was utilized by the Renaissance masters, and it still is utilized. And this idea of creating an environment where you could create a work that physically vanishes, you know, from a single point of view, was something that interested her and inspired her. I think she, like many of the artists in the show and many land artists, was interested in making something real that was out in the world, not making an image of something, not making an illusion. And so with with William Rush, that's kind of her first attempt. But I think Patricia's interest in perception, to me, relates more to painting. And that's quite evident with Stephen Long, which she does in 1968, where she placed painted panels of wood in red, yellow, and blue parallel lines on the, along an abandoned railroad track in upstate New York. And it was this work where those colors have a way of vibrating from certain perspectives, from an aerial perspective, especially, which you get when you watch that film. But even walking alongside it, she talks about how the colors change during different times of day as the sun hits hit the sculpture. So, you know, in the morning, the blue was actually violet, you know, in the, in the evening, the red was actually orange, all of these shifts in color. With Mary Miss, perception for her was about engagement of the body and kind of the proprioceptive response we have to objects and wanting to create something out of nothing, you know, create a sculpture that is next to nothing, very Richard Tuttle in a way. But this idea that you could use the barest means possible and still create the full effect of an experience, which is communicated quite clearly with the Battery Park Landfill, uh, but it's kind of something that she does throughout her career. She's very interested in engaging people to walk through a space to experience it. And rather than giving you something that you can understand or comprehend all at once, it's about movement and, you know, walking such a big part of her life and career too. And then 
I mean, Nancy Holt, I think, came Sun, about. I mean, yes, because sun tunnels are about perception, too. <laughs> sun it's just tunnels maybe a are... slightly different kind of perception. But, you know, preceding the sun tunnels was a body of work she did called Locators, which we have a work on view in the gallery, uh, Locator PS1, where these were all about perception and all about framing an image for her viewer. And this even goes back further to her tours. You know, she did a tour of the John Weber Gallery, for example, where she described aspects, physical aspects of the gallery space in an audio form. And then those tapes were played. You could play the tapes while you were in the gallery. And listening to her describe aspects of the gallery, you started to notice things that may not have jumped out at you before. So she, you know, whether it's through auditory direction or visual direction, Nancy's, Nancy Holt was very interested in kind of controlling that perspective and perception of a particular place. I mean, the locator PS1, for example, is this great thing where it's, she's using this sculpture, which is just two pipes, one horizontally placed at an angle on a vertical pipe. And you're meant to look through either end. And when you do that, you're rewarded with this perfect outline of a circle on one end and then a, an ellipse on the other end. And it only happens when you look through those two, two ends. Otherwise, those perfect circles are completely elongated. They're, you know, they don't, they don't have the shape of the circle unless you're looking through that particular point. So it was very interesting to Nancy Holt to be able to kind of frame a perspective and control a viewer's perception. A couple times there, you mentioned works that are at their most literal and simplest lines in the mm -hmm. land. And I noticed that across the show, a whole bunch of artists were interested in works that started with the idea and, and sometimes ended with the idea of, of being aligned through the land. So there's Lita Albuquerque's Malibu line of 1978 which was a line of ultramarine blue powder pigment installed in Malibu, California. I think you mentioned both Johansson's William Rush and Stephen Long a moment ago. Mm -hmm. Michelle Stewart's, we'll come back to Stewart in a minute, but Michelle Stewart's Niagara Gorge Path Relocated from 1975 mm -hmm. is essentially a line combined with topography. There are lots of lines in, in Meg Webster. I found myself wondering why there, I mean, okay, so I get that art historically lines come down through drawing and I get that in the sixties and seventies, Barnett Newman's particular use of lines must've been on everybody's mind, except for maybe Clifford Still, who just mostly wanted to stab Newman. Why so many lines? It's interesting that you see lines in this show when all I see are circles. I see circles everywhere. That's next on my list. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we just we just talked about Mary Mrs. Battery Park yeah. Landfill. And so yeah. my question to myself was, do I go to the lines next or do I go to the circles next? Because we talked okay. about both. Let's tackle, let's tackle lines and we'll get to circles. I think, yes, lines come from drawing. Lines are the simplest way to make a, make a gesture, you know. But also, if you think about some of the materials, non-art materials that artists were looking at, lots during this time frame and also thinking about the infrastructure of the u.s highway system which is a network of lines that crisscross physically throughout the united states that infrastructure was completed sometime in the mid-1950s 
And so opening up the country for drivers to just make their way across state lines in a much easier way than they had ever before. Much more linear way. Much more linear way than they had ever before. They're also looking at maps more frequently and seeing over, you know, overlay of this, the topography of our country is just lines. Sometimes they're curvilinear, sometimes they're straight, sometimes they're horizontal, you know, all over. I mean, and just looking at a globe, you, all you see are lines, the latitude and longitudes. And so this idea that our world is contained within this broad network of lines, whether they're invisible, intangible lines, boundaries, demarcating where a city limit ends and begins, or physical lines in the form of roadways, you know. So I think that this is, I think that's indicative of why why there's so much so many lines in the work that you see in the show. I obviously hadn't thought of the of the freeway system, but as soon as you say it, especially given that very often these artists were traveling to fulfill commissions to do works in spaces affiliated with universities. So they would have been on those very freeways. Mm-hmm. Circles. There are so many circles. So um, many Jody circles. Pinto's Well Projects, Alice Acock's Maze, Mary Mrs. Sunken Pool. So in one way, it occurred to me that when you are doing something in or on the land, a circle is a self-supporting structure, that there is mm. kind of a structural engineering reason that that is a useful form. It might also be more cost-effective than an eight-sided figure or a 17-sided <laughs> figure. But I'm sure you have far more interesting ideas and reasons for why circles are so useful and popular and wielded in so many different ways by, I don't know, eight or nine of the 12 artists in this show. I don't know if I have anything other than the observation (laughs) that there's so many circles. I mean, I have an anecdote about um, going over the installation plan with Mary Miss, and uh, there's a wall in the gallery that I, I installed a nice, beautiful photo mural of Battery Park Landfill. And on the same wall, just down a little bit, was Sun Tunnels, the 1978 film that Nancy Holt made. And when I was going over this layout with Mary Miss, I was doing so using the Nasher's model. So I was, we were looking at a model, we weren't looking at the galleries and the images that I used to support this, this, these two works in the model were of course, just the image of Battery Park Landfill, which is that when looking dead on, it's just this big, beautiful circle cutout of this, these plywood boards next to a a still from sun tunnels, which was, you know, the iconic image of the sun coming through at the exact moment. So it's just these concentric circles too, which are actually concrete. And seeing those two next side by side, I just was like, I was like, this is amazing. I can't wait to show these two works in conversation. I have my reasons, which I can get into with you, Tyler, but I, I didn't have a moment to even share those insights with Mary before she was kind of like, I really worry people are just going to think that I was making work about central core imagery and my, (laughs) and so there was this very, a a concern of Mary's that she did not want to be associated with that. Her work was not, did not have anything to do with that. And she said, also my work is ephemeral and temporary and made of materials that are also just more basic, more, you know, 
slap, not slapdash is the wrong word, but you know, wood billboards essentially that she could take in with the help of maybe one other person install and then also take out. Contrast that with sun tunnels, which required, you know, all sorts of people and contractors and heavy lifting equipment and all this to, and it's permanent and it's out there. So she had a lot of misgivings, but then when I explained to her, to me, these two works are more related than you might know. And also Sun Tunnels is a film. So this is a moving image. So it won't always be this static comparison of these two giant circles on the wall. But these two works to me felt very related in that they both require folks to move through a space in order to achieve this kind of perfect alignment of materials to create and resolve into perfect circles. They, of course, both use circles as their primary form. But this idea that artists, they illustrate the different ways artists were approaching land art from completely temporary kind of do-it-yourself out there on the only open landscape available at the time, which was a landfill, you know, the Battery Park landfill, or do it like you may have heard other artists, male artists do it, get a team together, buy some property out in a land, you know, a rural landscape, unpopulated landscape, and put something there that will be there, remain there permanently. So to me, it was this beautiful juxtaposition. And I think once I was able to communicate that with Mary, she kind of was won over and then eventually just gave up, you know, well, you're the curator, so go for it. But I take Mary's concern about not wanting the central core imagery to be associated with her work because, you know, she's a self-described feminist. And I think she probably has quite a bit of respect for many artists who might take central core imagery as like the core of their work. But I also don't know that the average museum goer is going to look at a circle and think central core imagery. Something about the circles reminds me that, you know, there's a real difference in, 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 in works that run through this show and their relationship to ground level, if you were. Well, mm-hmm. there are a whole lot of works in this show that dig down that are embedded in the earth. Alice Acock's project for a simple network of underground wells and tunnels uh, is subterranean. There's a bunch of subterranean work. There's a bunch of work that might have an above ground component, but where the work is activated by digging or extraction. There's Meg Webster's Glen, which is an actual or implied depression in the earth. And then with organic material being arranged around a circle. So normally, like if something's just sitting on the ground, we think, oh, sculpture. And if it goes into the land, we begin to think land art. And I think this show, this show in a lot of ways, confuses that construct because mm-hmm. so many works are doing both. So as you worked on this show and, and, and decided what should be in it, how did you think of the relationship between stuff at ground level and above and stuff that dug down, literally dug down? I thought about it in terms of the artists going underground. To me, we're trying to get a sense of what it was like to be contained within something get closer to the earth, but also give visitors to their work an experience that was sensorial, an experience that required this, again, this like proprioceptive relationship to the work, moving 
moving up, moving down, moving really down, suspending yourself into something as you would have had to do with Sunken Pool by Mary Miss or climbing down a ladder. It's these incredible spaces that these artists were making that required the uh, the visitor or the viewer to be really kind of courageous in terms of exploring. There's also the psychology of it. What are what are these spaces? They're interiors, they're underground, are they graves? You know, Lucy Lepard has a whole chapter in Overlay devoted to this type of underground artwork that was really kind of common in the 70s and 80s, you know, and she likens it not only to graves, but also to dwellings. And you think about just these artists trying to make interior spaces within the earth to me it's also a reference to our you know dwellings and to our homes and to places where you might feel safe which is kind of ironic given that getting into these spaces was often probably didn't feel so safe at the time yeah i'll leave the psychological fear of confinement (laughs) and being buried for it because i'm not sure that was in anybody's mind so i don't want to inject it so i'm going to leave it i think you know there's alice acox low building for Mary, which is a good example to talk about the psychology of these spaces that these artists were creating, because it required her, if, if one was so moved, they could crawl into that space. And what it, what it took to enter that space meant getting on your hands and knees, probably even on your belly, and pulling your body into a space that was slightly larger than the opening you just crawled through, but not by much. And then once you were in, you had to, I don't think there would have been room. I guess you could try it out now because it's permanently sited at Storm King currently. I think you would have then had to go out the same way you came in. So, you know, so it created this confined space. It's, there's tons and tons of earth above you on the roof because it's a dirt roof. And I think that she was interested in provoking this sense of precarity, a sense of danger, a sense of confinement. I think she achieved it. And I think she's done that in most of her architectural works. It's always about provoking a sense of unease. Maze. Maze. Yeah. Disorientation. This idea of there's no easy way out once you found your way in. And I mean, I don't want to create connections to perhaps the lives of these artists but the idea of working as a woman artist i think at that time probably felt pretty precarious at moments and so perhaps there was a sense of trying to communicate that experience through their work although now that you mention it i think a lot of the men who were working early in the land art era would have agreed that there was some precarity to what they were doing i mean dennis oppenheim when he's doing things in the east bay hills in california like a couple rainy days and there it goes. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's true. (laughs) Notably, Um, Dennis Oppenheimer and Alice Acock were married. Yeah. Yeah. Did I say Dennis Oppenheimer? I've been obviously thinking of Robert too much, but yes, Dennis Oppenheim. Yes. Speaking of precarity, an enormous amount of the work in the show and in the catalog was made, documented, and then destroyed or allowed to fall into ruin. So I have a couple questions about that. Are women, and I think for that matter, quite often men, making land art in circumstances that 
required temporality or mm. are they preferring temporality or is temporality just what happened? I think it's a mix of things. I think, you know, by necessity, temporality in order to just get something made, you know, there was the fact that, well, I, I only have these provisional materials, but I have to get this idea made. It's not going to last, but at least it's there. So in, there is some necessity in that decision to make something temporary. But then there is probably, I would imagine, some freedom in doing something that you know is going to just be temporary. For an artist to be able to do something and, and it almost try something out and not worry that whatever they do has to be permanent. You know, it can, it can come down and it can have this brief life and look the way the artist wanted it to look for this brief life and then be gone. And what lasts then is the documentation of that work. So I think there's, it's a mix of kind of by necessity and also by design to make things temporary. I think a lot of these artists too, in the early days, late 60s, 1970s were, you know, it was that necessity factor. It was like, they didn't have the support or the means to make more permanent work. You know, they weren't, they didn't have a Virginia Dwan funding their projects. They didn't have museums lining up to commission them for work. So they just, they did it anyway. And then if it had to be destroyed, so be it. There's a relationship with performance that runs through the show, such as with Marin Hassinger's Pink Trash from 1982. Mm -hmm. And if you're comfortable performance as being part of your practice, you're inherently comfortable with temporality, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the performance that, you know, it only existed when she, she did it. But I think as with many performers, performance artists, the documentation becomes the work because that's the only way for that work to continue to exist, right? Unless she were to restage it, which I believe she did in 2016 or 2017, maybe later at the Brooklyn Museum. But yeah, temporality is, it's a, a necessary evil of performance art. I mentioned work that was organic earlier. There are a whole bunch of artists in this show who were growing things. Meg Webster, Agnes Dennis. What was their interest in making sculpture that was like quite literally organically generative? I think with Meg Webster, for example, making something that was living required care, maintenance, I mean, daily care. We have on view Mossbed Queen, which is watered three times a day. It's like the best cared for moss garden <laughs> anywhere in the world at the moment. And it becomes this metaphor for the care she wants us to give to everything, not just this sculpture in a museum but to ourselves, to one another, to the planet that we're <laughs> increasingly making an unlivable. So for Meg, I think that that was of great interest to her to try to get people to think about these things and think about our relationship to the landscape and to earth and to nature. Um, and for Agnes, growing, I mean, she grew the wheat field, which is her probably her iconic work from 1982 best known, but, you know, in 1968, forgive me if I have the date wrong, she performed Rice Tree Burial in upstate New York and planted a field of rice. And so this idea of growth, something generative, 
was has been part of her practice for many, many, many years, continues to be a huge aspect of her practice. And and to me it implies this sense of hope that there that that grass, you know, that rice will grow into something that can be used to sustain life, you know, it becomes part of the cycle. The wheat that she grew on the Battery Park landfill, she harvested and sent around the world, sent those seeds around the world as an act of kind of, you know, an, an act to recognize world hunger and also distribution of resources. And then, you know, planting however many trees she planted in Finland. Sorry if I'm getting this story wrong, but it's out after 1990, so I'm not terribly well schooled on it. But this idea that there's to plant something means you're hoping that it's going to have a life of its own, right? And this, to me, I would love to ask Agnes this, like, so do you think there is a future on this planet? Do you, I mean, she's also, in addition to planting natural materials, she's planted by way of time, burying time capsules at several of her sites, notably at Art Park in 1978. She buried a time capsule, and this has become something she started doing. And, you know, they aren't meant to be open for 200 years or 500 years, you know, some incredible time frame that exceeds, far exceeds my lifetime or my daughter's or her life. And so to me, that again communicates this hope that she must have that someone will be here to open that at some point and learn from what whatever, you know, lessons she may have provided in that. The organic work strikes me as very often being metaphorical. And we think of European-American landscape art as descending from Emerson in the 1830s. Artists pick up on him in the 1840s, and metaphor is motivating. And that idea stays in American landscape, at least through precisionism. And we think of earth art, of land art, as being experiential rather than metaphorical. And what really jumps out at me about the organic works in your show is they're very often both. I mean, like, you know, Smithson and Sarah and Oppenheim weren't interested in the metaphorical and 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 works like Mossbed Queen do it all. I want to wrap up by kind of asking a before and after question. I'm sure that as you began to plan this ex- exhibition, however many moons ago, you thought about why holding the women apart from the men in an all-women exhibition was was, you know, I'm sure you made to yourself an argument for the value of that. Mm-hmm. And then and then you go through the research and the writing and the selection of objects for the show and you install the show and you're out the other side. Are the reasons you identified for engaging in an all-women project when you started, did it turn out, did those turn out to be right? Or, or do you have other ideas now about why an all-women project might have been and then in the end was valuable? So I would not do it any differently to try to answer part of the question. And that is because our galleries are full of work that is completely new to most people. Even the most scholarly person who comes through and maybe even the best expert on land art will come into these galleries and see something they've never seen before in person. They've only heard about if that and I can't tell you. I mean, there's over 150 objects in this show. I would not take any of those away, not a single one, to give space to something that we've already seen thousands of pictures of 
We've already seen Smithson's films. We've already seen the photos of Spiral Jetty. We've already seen so much of this work by men. I didn't want to give up any real estate to regurgitating those, those histories, those, those images that work. I wanted to do something that would excite people and give them the kind of excitement that I felt when I got to see this work in person for the first time. And that is like the experience of this work. It's already challenging to communicate land art in a gallery. So how do you do that? You do that by knocking people's socks off with some of the examples that we have. So to me, I'm, I'm very happy with it. What I might say in the future, I would love to see more land art shows, you know, all genders, that's fine. But perhaps this show will open the door to a new conception of what a land art show could be in terms of, it doesn't have to be the, the triumvirate of land art that we've always, let's expand it. I want to see Charles Simmons work. You know, I want to see Charles Roth. I mean, I want to see work that challenges this, you know, the mythologies that we've built around land art. And I did that with Groundswell using the work of women artists, but there are countless male artists that also don't get really brought into grander narratives of land art because their work just didn't follow this narrative. And so I think in the future, I hope that we start to see more of that work and, you know, less of the stuff that we've already seen so many, many times. I mean, I think part of what you're saying there is this was a pathway to avoid the confirmationism (laughs) that has taken over so much of American museums in the Mm -hmm. last half decade and a way to simultaneously reject the priority of entertainment that has taken root at so many museums. You know, your framework is prioritizing investigation and discovery over confirmationism and entertainment. Yeah, I'll take that. That that is a compliment that I will absolutely take. <laughs> Yay I, revisionism. <laughs> I will also say that Groundswell, in fact, follows the long line of land art shows that or I should say the very first land art shows by artists, organized by artists or galleries, earthworks that Robert Smithson curated, or Earth Art at Cornell. They were all will, will it be sharp? Yes, they were all single gender shows. Yeah, no, I thought that too. You know, um, so often it's generally organized by men. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, we this is the same thing. It's just all women. <laughs> Lee Arnold, thanks very much. Thank you. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Robert Frank and Todd Webb, Across America, 1955. Step into a unique photographic journey with Robert Frank and Todd Webb, two photographers who were both funded by Guggenheim Fellowships to capture America in 1955. The New York Times had this to say. While Robert Frank was driving across the United States, Todd Webb was covering the same terrain by bicycle, boat, and foot. Robert Frank's work has become an iconic piece of photographic history, but Todd Webb's project remains largely unknown. This is the first time their work has been shown together, offering a rare opportunity to explore America's diversity through their lenses. Discover this extraordinary exhibition at mfah.org slash across America. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation in St. Louis. 
presenting Sarah Crowner Around Orange, curated by Stephanie Weisberg, on view from September 8th to February 4th, 2024. Bold abstraction and intense color are signatures of the New York-based painter Sarah Crowner, who brings these elements to the Pulitzer. In three new site-specific artworks, Crowner pays homage to the architecture of the Pulitzer's Tato Ando building and the vision of Ellsworth Kelly, whose monumental wall sculpture Blue Black is on permanent view in the Pulitzer's main gallery. Check out the exhibition on the Pulitzer's digital guide through Bloomberg Connects, the free arts and culture app. The digital guide takes you behind the scenes at the Pulitzer with exclusive multimedia perspectives from artists, curators, and more. Use the app to plan your visit, then easily access helpful insights on site. Afterward, dive deeper into your favorite works at home or anywhere, anytime. For more info, visit pulitzerarts.org. 50 years ago, celebrated San Diego-based artist Eleanor Anton staged and photographed 100 boots on their cross-country trip from Solano Beach to New York City. A new exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego includes the 51 postcards that document the boots' journey. Also on view is work by the collective My Barbarian, whose layered performances continue Anton's spirit of social critique and playfulness. Opening September 21st on view through February 2024, see Eleanor Anton and My Barbarian at the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego La Jolla campus. Plan your visit by going to mcasd.org. Welcome back. Next up, Sarah Crowner. The Pulitzer Arts Foundation is presenting Sarah Crowner Around Orange, a presentation of site-specific artworks that engage with the Pulitzer's Tatoando building and with Ellsworth Kelly, whose monumental sculpture Blue Black is on permanent view at the Pulitzer. The exhibition, which was curated by Stephanie Weisberg, is on view in St. Louis through February 4th. Concurrently, the Hill Art Foundation in New York is showing The Sea, the Sky, a Window, an exhibition of site-specific works Crowner is presenting with sculptures and paintings from several private collections. The exhibition is on view through February 17th. Sarah Crowner, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. Conceptually and to a certain extent installationally, your exhibition at the Pulitzer is an address of several prominent Ellsworth Kellys, including the Pulitzer's own Blue Black. Why is Kelly of interest to you? Kelly is an artist that I've been thinking about and studying and looking at for a long time. I don't know, 20 years. Kelly has spoken to me since the very beginning. I think what drew me to Kelly earlier in my career as a painter was sort of the curiosity, was a curiosity that I felt. How can someone make the simplest form using the simplest, most straightforward colors? It looks so easy, but it's just so hard <laughs> to make as an artist. Like, how did he do it? It appears to be so simple, but I've tried to make a Kelly and it's actually very, very hard. The subtle angle of a curve, the proportions, color relationships between very simple color tones. It's not as easy as it looks. So Kelly has always been a, a puzzle to me, I would say. And for that reason, I'm constantly looking at Kelly. I fell in love with the early paintings, I would say, from the 50s and 60s at first. But then when I really began to fascinate me, 
was when I saw a show at the Drawing Center in 2002 called Tablet. It was an exhibition of his sort of his notebook pages or his sketchbook pages, little collages, little drawings, little notations, sort of little objects that he ripped out of a newspaper or even some shape that he found on the street that he squashed and put in in a book and mounted onto paper. For me, that was a revelation because I began to understand how he thinks. Like, so the puzzle was sort of being answered or the puzzle was, I was cracking the puzzle. (laughs) I I felt like I was beginning to crack the code of Kelly and the way Kelly thinks. And so I, I began to imagine him as finding abstraction, not about creating abstraction out of thin air, but he would find shapes in the world and then distill them, study them, refine them, and then turn them into his artwork. So it became so his work is really about paying attention, observation, looking more than sort of invention. That's that's what I take out of of Kelly. And that's why Kelly is like endlessly fascinating to me because his work and his practice has been so open-ended because you can find a curve anywhere in the world if you're looking for it. So Kelly's always been on my mind. And when I had the opportunity to do a show at the Pulitzer Art Foundation with a very prominent large-scale Kelly relief, blue-black, I said yes, of course. Well, to that point, Kelly loved to abstract away from very specific references. So sometimes that's like a Cezanne painting of a bay along the Mediterranean. Or in the case of 1950s white plaque bridge arch and reflection, which is a part of your installation at the Pulitzer, from a specific built structure, a bridge. So do any of your works here abstract away from a specific reference a la Kelly? I have a studio in Red Hook, Brooklyn, and we've got a little courtyard in the studio building. And I have these big windows and I'm always looking outside the windows, spacing out, looking for looking for shapes, looking for colors, looking for forms in a state of kind of, I don't know, zoned outness sometimes. And I'll notice something and somehow that the line of that leaf or the the connection of, of a leaf and a stem, for example, will find its way into a painting. Usually I'll make some sketches and then refine those and, and somehow they'll work their way into a painting. But in my case, I don't usually just stop there, like find a form, turn it into a painting, and then it's done. Usually that's that's like the midway point. At some point after like creating this these sewn object canvases, sometimes I'll look at the painting, I'll look at that object and not be quite satisfied with it. And then I'll cut it up and rearrange those shapes and make something new out of it. So there's a lot of up and down and back and forth in the studio. It's not so, the process is not so linear kind of, it's more like the snake eating its tail than a kind of a straight line, if that makes sense. So it's kind of hard to say like this form wound it, wound it's, this form is, this painting came from that particular form. It's kind of what usually a, a scrambled up combination of a lot of things. And then another thing, and I don't know how much this relates to Kelly, but another thing that I do is because the paintings are 
made from cut canvas that it's sewn, that are painted and sewn together. I have a lot of negative shapes from the cutting out of a positive form. So like a big sheet of painted green canvas, maybe I'll cut out a sort of a semicircle, but then I have this like negative shape of the, which is the leftover canvas. And then often that shape is maybe more interesting or more um, alluring to me than the first, than the positive shape. So I'll bring the negative shape into a different painting. We will come back to sewing in a moment, but I want to kind of get there by talking about one of the works in your Pulitzer installation. I think that one of the traditions your Untitled Around Orange extends, and, and for that matter, that, that Kelly's work often does too, is the French decorative tradition, the fusion of painting and the high art and, and higher art of decoration that has motivated French artists for centuries. Think Pouvi, think Matisse, right? So are you interested in the centuries-old French decorative tradition? I mean, I'm definitely interested in Matisse's installation at the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia, and I'm interested in his murals for the the swimming pool murals, those cutouts, and I'm interested in these ceramic mosaics he made for the for exterior spaces. There's one in Los Angeles that's really one in Toledo too. Yeah, so I'm I'm interested in those things. I don't say I'm not saying that that's drive. That's not really what drives me, but. I certainly feel an an affinity there. The way that we install, the way that I installed the paintings at the Pulitzer, they evoke a freeze. I kept talking about whatever, how many of their 11 or 12 panels, something like that. (laughs) And I hung them together. So they're, most of them are touching. Some of them have a little space in between the panels, but it kind of reads as a 177 foot long freeze. And Stephanie Weisberg and I, the curate, the curator, we kept calling it a freeze. And at one point I, I was like, what is a freeze actually? <laughs> How do you define freeze? Because I think that's a freeze. And then we had to kind of look it up and make sure because we were working on the language for the, um, for the, for the signage. <laughs> it's a freeze and it's a half a freeze, a half a painting. So it's a decorative architectural element that's usually horizontal. <laughs> And it's also, in my case, a number of painted panels that are hung very close to each other. But what's, what I think is interesting about that and why I wanted to hang it as such is what's interesting to me is the way that you read the, the object, the freeze, is with your body. You can't take it all in at once because it's so wide. It's so big that you, even if you stand back as far as you can, you can't really take it all in. The way to really read it is left to right or right to left. And we can get more into that in terms of color because it was sort of organized in response to the blue-black Kelly, which is at the far right end. Let's see, is that the north, south, east, west? It's at one end. The blue Kelly's blue-black is at one end. Yeah. So there's a reading of either left to right or right to left, and that's something that one can only do with one's body can't really just do it with your eyes. How do you organize a 77 foot long semi-freeze in relation to a color or colors in another work that's installed higher on a wall nearby? The very first thing I noticed when I walked into the Pulitzer for the first time was the blue black, was blue black, blue black by Ellsworth Kelly, 2002, right? 2000, whatever. It's about 20 years old. 
It's there. It's, it's 330 inches high and it's about 72 inches wide hanging vertically. And that piece struck me as a ruler. I thought of it as a template or a ruler. I thought, or what if I could think of this artwork, this super formal painting sculpture object as a measuring tool. So I, I took, I kind of mentally took it off the wall <laughs> and I rotated it 90 degrees to make it a horizontal object. And then I multiplied it several times. So I wanted to take the Kelly, respond to it by making the vertical horizontal. And I also wanted to react to the Kelly or respond to the Kelly by turning blue black into orange and white. So those are the opposites of the color wheel. The opposite of blue is orange. The opposite of black is white. So the system that I set up for myself was I'm going to make a very horizontal piece that's orange and white. And it ran from the place where it starts, the freeze, is at the corner of the window facing it. The proportions of the window are also the same proportions as the Kelly. So they're also 72 inches high. I think Kelly and Tado Ando worked. They did collaborate together. And I'm sure that Kelly made his blue black 72 inches wide because the the, the the windows facing the pool are also 72 inches high. I feel like I so should have known this, that. like mirroring of artwork, architecture, object. Kelly's is very hard and geometric. Mine is very soft and biomorphic in terms of the curves and the, in terms of the material and then the curves and the composition. So I started by making a number of panels that were kind of biomorphic abstractions out of orange and white. And that's, that was my system. But then as I'm working on it and it's many months in the making, I kind of missed the blue in my studio. And I thought, what if I just made a blue black? I'll oh, fine. I'll just make a blue black <laughs> painting too. And I used the same color that I think Kelly used. So as you see in the, if you look at images of the installation, you can see there are two or three blue black panels, but mostly they're orange and white. We will have images of such up on manpodcast.com. I mentioned I wanted to come back to sewing. Your your works are typically sewn together, which is a mashing up a craft process with painting. And and, and I think I, I would I think I would argue within all of that is a certain reference to the European tapestry tradition, which isn't exactly about sewing, of course, but which is about textiles and assembly and the big ideas and the biggest objects in the most dramatic spaces in the European context, um, often against the coldest walls. Does any of that history interest or inform you? Not the coldest walls, but the tapestry. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think, I think for a while I've been interested in questioning the definition or the line between the applied arts and the fine arts. I've made a number of tile works that to me read like paintings, but paintings you can walk on, but they're clearly functional objects. There's something you can, that's something you can walk on. I'm using building materials. That's an, you know, tile making is an applied art. Also tailoring, quilt making, sewing is an applied art. I'm using the techniques of a, of the stitcher, the tailor, but I'm a painter. I mean, I've studied painting. I've been thinking about painting forever. So I'm coming at this as a as a painter as a painter. I don't like to say fine art, like a fine artist, but painting. But I think it's interesting to connect. I think it can be interesting to think of painting a painting that's functional 
or like alludes to the functional. So a tapestry is something that's functional. It warms up a cold wall, like you said. A tile floor could be seen as a painting, but it could also be something that's just literally covering the floor, something that you step on and engage with. So the kind of place between function, non-function, craft art, the applied arts, and so on are super interesting to me. But I, I think I lean toward, I kind of think of the paintings as they're objects for sure. They're flat in the end, but they're made almost sculpturally because I'm really like manipulating the, not just paint, but I'm manipulating the canvas itself by cutting it, by stitching it, by running all of this material through a sewing machine. It's, it's a different pro it's a very different process than image making. It's object making in my mind. I think of it as kind of like joining bodies of color together or joining bodies together in the way that uh, a carpenter would do that. Here's a joint, here's a, board of wood. Here's another board of wood. And it's joined by this kind of dovetail joint, for example. This is, it's kind of, I kind of think about it, think about making my paintings as joining different bodies together, bodies of color. Something about that feels very Vienna 1905, right? This kind of fusion. And of course, Vienna 1905 is probably informed by France, 1890, right? So it's, yeah. there's a certain historical continuum with which you're playing. You mentioned hard-edged painting. There are lots of references within your work uh, for many years now to hard-edged painting. Though I think maybe more lately, unlike a lot of hard-edged painting, you can retain a certain depth or dimensionality, slight, but I think it's often there. So take a work you're showing at New York's Hill Art Foundation right now. In that work, you hold on to ending a color at an enforced vertical line, if you will. You have two similar colors abutting each other, and there is an evident verticality between the, the two slightly different blues, for example. And then the colors aren't flat, like we would see in like a John McLaughlin or, or like a Kelly Blue Black. They're brushy and modulated, not flat and same. There's a work I'm thinking of from 2018 in your oeuvre, Sliced Dusk, Lilacs, Greens. There are lots of recognizable hard-edged things there, but you allow or even prioritize the illusion of space. What from hard edge do you think of valuing and wanting to maintain and extend? And what from it do you want to question and even undermine? With the paintings that I made for the exhibition at the Hill Art Foundation, I had set up this challenge for myself. I had, in this space, there are four floating walls that were designed probably to hang paintings on, right? But these floating walls stand in front of a much larger window, which shows kind of the, the cityscape outside. So it's like a, a floating wall in front of a giant window. And I wanted to make paintings that were both paintings, but also walls. So you kind of talked about 1905 Vienna, this maybe the succession moment. I was thinking about painters that were also architects or like thinking painters that were thinking like architects or architects that were thinking like painters. So I decided to make three, even though there are four floating walls, I decided to make three very large site-specific paintings that are made specifically for the dimensions of those walls. So the so if one wall is 120 inches wide, I made a painting that's 
120 inches, 118 inches wide. So there's just a little margin. But the the idea is that they're the idea is that they're autonomous, their paintings, but they're also relative. They also relate to they're made for a specific place for this architecture. I wanted to kind of control my impulse to use defined geometric forms and make them as blue and monochrome as possible. I haven't really made such monochrome work. So like 90% of the, the painting or each of the paintings is, is like a blue or a shade of blue. But there are some like different shades of blue. Yeah, there are different shades of blue because I never, <laughs> I never got around to kind of defining the exact recipe of the shade of blue that I wanted to, to, to use. I just kept like mixing it on the spot. So sometimes the blue will be a little too warm. Not Sometimes the blue will be a little warmish. Sometimes the blue will be a little coolish. Sometimes a little dark, sometimes a little watered, watered down, but generally the same kind of family of blue. I, the paintings are so big, I had to paint, and I can only paint so much at one time, that I had to paint sections of canvas and then join them together, like I was saying before, joining bodies of color together to make a larger, a larger blue ground. And sort of in a similar way that like you would put, let's say you would put wallpaper up in these like one meter wide strips. It was kind of like that idea. (laughs) And then I couldn't control myself. I had to have some little form and form form activity happening in the paintings. So at the top of each of these canvases, there might be a little wiggly line or a little, a little cutout or a little, So like I couldn't control myself. I had to have a little bit of form here, a little bit of form there. But for the most part, they're very, very restrained and monochrome blue. One of the things I think I hear you saying is that one of the things you like about hard edge painting is that it has architectural potential. I mean, when I think of like John McCracken's or other particularly West Coast hard edge painting, those are not big canvases. They're, they're, They're small and intense and the geometries and shapes and forms within them are kind of feeling very maximal within confined spaces. And, you know, as we've already discussed, you don't confine yourself to small objects. And it sounds like one of the things about hard edge that interests you is that while, you know, in the fifties and sixties and seventies, those spaces are confined. You like that they had some reference to or engagement with architecture potentially within them. That's correct. I also think that I'm interested in, you know, I've talked about the body a little bit before and the way the body can engage or like interact with the painting. And I think my work reveals itself to you one way from far away. And then as you get closer and closer, you see that that hard edge might not be a painted hard edge the hard edge being made by tape, for example, or like a very straight brush. The hard edge is made from, it's a seam and it's, it's again, these like bodies of color joined together. So there's something very physical in them and something that I think I would want you to move forward and engage with, not with your, just with your eyes, but with your whole body. I can't really speak about John McCracken and those artists so much. I'm not really looking at them so much, I think one of the things that you do that rejects a hard edge tradition, even for example, a lot of Kelly 
is that within your work, there is a lot of suggestion of movement, of figures moving, of dancers moving. You have created environments, to use like the Merce Cunningham era term, <laughs> uh, around which, through which, in front of which, behind which dancers could move. Are you interested in the idea of using these languages yet opening up the opportunity for those kind of two or three generational painterly languages to suddenly seem to move on your on your canvases air quotes that would be amazing if they could move yes they could be, or even if they could seem to move <laughs> well they definitely seem to move your stuff does seem to move in, in part because it's bigger than we are yeah yeah and it is i mean I could say, I hope for you to engage with your body, but I think you have to, if they're that big, you kind of don't have a choice. You're kind of confronted with it. And I've, and I've, and I've worked with, I've done collaborations with choreographers and with theatrical kind of collaborations. I've worked with the stage in, in a few instances, not, not as much as I'd like to, I'd like to do more of that. Yeah. I think of the, I think of Merce Cunningham as, as the perfect example there was also an exhibition when you said environments, an exhibition in 1961 or 1963 at Martha Jackson Gallery called Environments, Situations, Spaces. And it was with Alan Capro and John Cage and Tal Soldenberg and Alien Pasloff. The dance company was involved somehow. And that moment in art history is one I think is very interesting to me and calls my name <laughs> because there was so much collaboration between painters and dancers and sound and things were happening in galleries, but also in theaters, but also in the street. I think it was a very interesting, very fruitful time. So yeah, I think about that environment, situation, spaces, and, and what I'm trying to get out, get what I'm trying to get at is I do make objects and I love making objects in my studio. What more and more I'm interested in are relationships and the relationship of the painting to the body of the the relationship of the paintings in their space in their architecture the relationship of art history and the present are between me and an art historical figure who might be dead <laughs> not even a relationship between me and that artist but a, between my work and their work and sort of like i think the magic happens in the spaces between the works and the people. So it's that invisible energy that happens in an exhibition. And that's what I'm getting at in, with the Hill Art Foundation show and also with the, at the Pulitzer. It's so much about, yeah, these relationships. The room, which we haven't talked about yet, but I'm, I'm sure you'll ask me at some point, the, the first exhibition, the first exhibition space at the Pulitzer with white plaque. Okay. I just want to say something about that. Because yeah, the, sure. The Pulitzer show is the big part of the show is the, the, the main part of the show is the 77 foot long painted frieze in relation to the blue black. But there's another gallery at the entrance of the museum. We hung white plaque from 1955 in that room. Also a small collage, also 1955 in that room. But my my intervention or my contribution to that room was a raised six inch wooden plat curved platform that kind of Emmy Pulitzer called keeps calling it a floor sculpture. And I just have been calling it a platform because I like the word I, I like the idea that it's a it's a floor sculpture because it's it does have an autonomy. It's not 
connected to the walls. It's not connected to the floor. It is kind of floating. There's this recessed edge around the whole thing. So it does have that autonomy like a sculpture does, but it is a platform because it is something that you can and should step up on and walk on. And the idea is that, you you know, space changes your mindset. And so as you step up onto this curved platform, not only are you standing on wood instead of concrete, you're standing on something soft instead of something hard and you're standing on something curved and it's an autonomous body that's curved. And then maybe you notice that the curve is the same curve or the same fragment of a curve that's in the white plaque that you're looking at. So it's this kind of the floor sculpture or the platform becomes an embodiment of white plaque in some ways. That's the hope. Excellent. Sarah Crowner. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.